Hey, limited partners. Before we dive into this episode with Doug Rand, which, for the record, is one of my favorites to date, I wanted to remind everyone about our global virtual meetup. Next week, we will all be getting together on the internet to celebrate Acquired passing the million download milestone. It'll be February 21st at 5.30 p.m. Pacific, which is 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time. We'll be using Zoom and structuring it as a live Q&A with folks. We haven't done one of these before, but in the spirit of experimenting with the edges of the podcasting medium, we're going to give it a shot. If you want to join, mark your calendar now and you can check out the Slack or the website beforehand with the link. And now, onto this fascinating and important discussion on clean energy funding and the whole capital supply chain with Doug Rand. Hello, Acquired Limited Partners, and welcome to The Bonus Show. Uh, David and I are here with, uh, with a very special guest for you today, Doug Rand. So hello, Doug. Hello. Thank you so much for, for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. So listeners, I know Doug because he is the co-founder of Boundless, which is a Pioneer Square Lab spin-out company um, that is, uh, is making it humane and sane uh, to immigrate to the United States with absolute trust and confidence and, and really, modern, uh, really modern tools. And, that was uh, a really good elevator pitch. I might have to steal that. <laughs> I think you guys have uh, A-B tested the, the, <laughs> sort of the perfect way to describe it on your website, but I couldn't quite remember it. Humane so, and sane. That, that's a tagline. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, it's better on, on audio because it rhymes. Yeah. Um, but t- today, listeners, we're going to uh, uh, dive into a topic that Do- Doug knows really well, and that's the state of uh, energy funding in the United States, and, and particularly given sort of the um, global energy crisis that we're in, and, and specifically around... Uh, um, you know, carbon emissions. Um, Doug has a ton of really cool nuanced thoughts and, and basically history in sort of, um, uh, different startups that have tried to innovate in, in energy and how funding flows to them over the years. And, uh, and we had this great coffee a couple months ago and I thought, gosh, this is something that, that really needs to be shared more broadly and that, that our LPs would really dig. Um, and so, so Doug, uh, uh, to kick it over to you, you know, I know that you worked in the Obama administration. Um, you've appeared sort of all over national news, uh, news in different uh, um, TV platforms talking about both immigration and, and uh, um, some of the entrepreneurship stuff you worked on in the White House. Can you give us a little bit of sense of, of sort of your background and, and uh, what got you into the space? Sure. Um, yeah, I'm happy to. Uh, well, I mean, briefly, I guess I'm just your typical evolutionary biologist turned theater publisher turned policy wonk turned tech entrepreneur. <laughs> uh, I won't bore you. Perfect acquired guest. With, yeah, with the, full, <laughs> with the full story. But I mean, basically, I, I was very fortunate and came to the White House uh, on a public policy fellowship in 2010. Uh, and I was in this wonderful part of the White House called the Office of Science and Technology Policy, um, which under the Obama administration really expanded and had a whole range of really exciting activities going on. Um, and I was given a pretty much a new portfolio um, because I'd been an entrepreneur before. Um, and it was still, we're still digging our way out of the recession. Uh, everyone's, everyone in the country and particularly policymakers are thinking about job creation. Um, and at the time, it was, it was still some fairly new research that showed that um, startups not just in tech, uh, but across the board and not just in Silicon Valley, but across the country. But the new companies uh, really have a special role to play in job creation and innovation um, more than incumbents. Um, And uh, and that traditionally, uh, small business policy um, was always a central concern of any president, but that's probably different from policies to promote high growth potential startups. So what what would those policies look like? and so that was a really exciting mission to pursue. Start and you worked here. here here's a new policy propo- uh, policy portfolio. Go figure it out. Where are you? Right, start? and that that led to things like the international entrepreneur rule. Is that yeah, that was all kinds of things? On? So I mean, yeah. So like I, most of the things I worked on uh, were technology neutral and industry neutral. Hmm. Let's let's just sustain and grow America's lead as the best place on earth to start and scale a company. Um, and so. 
I did things around access to capital, um, most prominently something called the Jobs Act, which has made it possible to do crowdfunding for debt and equity and also has made IPOs a little bit less costly. Um, and I did things on inclusive entrepreneurship uh, to try to uh, do some public-private partnerships around making sure that you don't have to be uh, look a certain way or be from a certain zip code to get funding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I did a lot of stuff around immigration because it turns out that when you go around the country and talk to smart people in tech, uh, whether they're investors or entrepreneurs or engineers, and you say, hi, I'm, I'm from the federal government and I'm trying to promote entrepreneurship. They don't want to talk about taxes or regulations or access to capital or you know, all the things that you'd expect. They want to talk about immigration policy. Um, and so it was a very, very immediate realization that if I was going to work on entrepreneurship and innovation for the Obama administration, I need to work on immigration policy as well. Mm, um, that's awesome. And obviously so, related to boundless, but I think there's yeah. like, there's some crazy stat. I think something like two thirds of Sequoia's portfolio over, you know, the 40 years that they've been doing venture, uh, have at least one, you know, non-native U S founder. Oh, yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, the, you can go on and on. I mean, most of the, uh, if not most, at least a pretty high percentage of the fortune 500 were founded by immigrants or their children. Um, more than half the current unicorns have a have an immigrant founder. I mean, just go on and on and on. Um, mm-hmm. So, so I worked on all this stuff, which was really, really exciting and really uh, gratifying. But then, um, uh, I was always interested in uh, the interaction between technology innovation and climate solutions. Um, and so, the one of the things I worked on that was more technology industry specific was something we ended up calling the clean energy investment initiative. Um, and, and that was really focused on the fact that, okay, we, we have all these policies to support high growth potential startups across the board, but sure looks like if you're trying to attack something, you know, attack a problem in, uh, anything to do with a fundamental innovation in clean energy, uh, that's a whole other set of challenges in terms of financing and, and other, uh, yeah, existential risks for, for a company. Um, yeah. And, and that's, and that's the thing I really want to dig in today on. Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll, let you, I'll let you finish in a second, but the, the, the question that's been like ruminating in my mind ever since we had coffee is, uh, you know, if I want to start a new SaaS business, there's a ton of capital available to me. If I want to yeah. start, um, a new, uh, sort of shoot for the moon consumer experience, both in entertainment or social, there's capital available to me. There's plenty of sort of, uh, uh deeper tech plays. If I want to do a AI solution for something, or I want to even, uh, innovate in hardware and, and go raise a hundred million dollars to do something groundbreaking in hardware that's available to me. But if I want to, if I want to make a serious dent in, in building new, um, technology to help address global climate issues, and I want to work on clean energy, that capital is way, way harder to find. And, and, right. uh, um, you know, really why is that? Right. And so I, I, I went through my own, uh, kind of aha or maybe more appropriately, oh no moment, uh, <laughs> in that same vein, like midway through my, my time at the white house where I, yeah, I was, we're all worrying about this problem, uh, in terms of whether our, our entire innovation machine is really working. Um, and particularly acutely after the kind of boom bust of VC investment in, in more fundamental clean tech that happened starting around 2006, 2007, and then crashing around. Well, I mean, right after the recession for a lot of reasons. Um, but then there was this one number I looked at that just really crystallized it. Um, well, really three numbers. Um, you look at global clean tech R&D uh, spending by governments. Um, mm-hmm. So this is like really you know, basic science, some applied uh, R&D with an actual you know, end use in mind. Um, but this is the stuff that only governments can fund. Uh, it's never, you know, you, you know, across the political spectrum, everyone agrees that this is not stuff that private industry is ever going to invest in because the time horizons are too long and it's too risky. Um, that number is about $15 billion a year. Um, and about half of that's in the United States, not just in the Department of Energy, but in other agencies as well. And it should be a lot higher. Um, if, you know, any expert would tell you it needs to be many multiples higher for us to really be uh, uh, at, the, at, at the scale of the problem. But that's, that's still a big number. So that's f- 15 billion in sort of like government and academic funding for c- clean energy research. 
Yeah. So, go, you know, governments funding mostly uh, scientists at universities, uh, to some extent in private industry as well. Um, but that's that's the public investment. And then if you look all the way at the other end of the uh, of the uh, time horizon and you look at, you know, what private capital is, you know, the, the capital markets are, are deploying into mature technologies, it's about 300 billion a year. Um, mm. And that number has, has been rising, but not high enough. Most, most experts think it needs to be a trillion a year uh, for us to uh, not burn through our carbon budget. Um, and, uh, and that's mostly, that, that's 300 billion a year is mostly building new wind turbines and building new solar panels. Mm. Got it. So it's 300 billion a year just in, in, in clean energy initiatives, but not necessarily like startups or new. Yeah. That's like, that's, that, that includes everything. And it's mostly just yeah. asset finance. It's like putting hardware in the ground stuff. We know, yeah. you know, like, you know, yeah. Goldman Sachs knows that this, uh, this new wind farm is going to return such and such, uh, you know, capital over time. And so mm-hmm. the capital markets open up like they're supposed to, and you get more wind farms. Um, so that's those are the th- those are the two uh, uh, data points on either end of the innovation cycle, uh, but then when you look in between, this is where uh, this is where uh, panic can ensue because you know it's bad enough that we're under investing in R and D and under investing in deployment, but if you look inside that three hundred billion and say, okay, well, how much of that is um, venture investment? Um, it's pretty low. And then when you look inside that venture investment number and just look at seed and series A and exclude things that aren't really uh, kind of science intensive clean tech, like basically if you exclude O-Power and, uh, and Nest <laughs> and companies like that, which, you know, we, those are great companies which, which and you know, both, I'm glad they exist. What, what, or, uh, Oracle bought O-Power and then Google bought Nest? That's right. Yep. Great exits, great companies, uh, definitely contributing to climate solutions, but um, they're fundamentally software companies you know, with a bit of a hardware twist uh, for, for Nest. Um, you exclude all that and suddenly this number comes staring up at you. At least this was true in 2014. I went back and checked before the show and I don't think it's budged a great deal since then. Guess, guess how much money globally uh, was going into cleantech uh, seed in Series A? Oof, I mean, very, very little. Like, I'm I, 300 million, 500 million. Yeah, well done. Yeah, between two and 300 million. Wow. You know, and compare that to, as Ben was saying earlier, you know, you want to build an enterprise software company, a SaaS company, you want to build a marketplace, you want to build a consumer, direct to consumer brand. Like, <laughs> it's orders of magnitude more than that. Yeah, I mean, didn't VC just had its best year ever, didn't it? Or maybe not best year ever, but best year since a couple bubbles ago. <laughs> maybe well, that, mo- mo- that includes capital raised, growth rounds, capital but, deployed. Yeah, but even even to seed in Series A, you know, yeah, I mean, many many billions of dollars of dollars. Right. right. So I mean, two hundred million dollars a year. That's you know, two hundred three hundred million dollars a year. That's about the entire budget of ARPA E, wow. which is just one federal agency in one country. Um, it's so Doug, uh, to, to, if, if I went yeah. and raised like a $250 million clean tech focus series a fund and, yeah. and that would be similar to like a Madrona where, where David and I used to work, um, yeah. you know, that that's focused on a, a bunch of different technologies, but a series a, you know, sort of standard size series a fund that's actually yeah. on the low end these days, I'd be doubling the entire global investment in that category. Well, not you, well, in, in, in well, series a funding, but you wouldn't be deploying that all in one year. Great right. point. So Great point. I would think about it this way. So you know, let, let's take Bill Gates and his uh, you know, billionaire collective that started Breakthrough Energy yep. Ventures a couple of years back. That's a billion dollar fund. Um, I believe they've said they want to deploy that over five years. So they single handedly doubled that number wow. if, if they're going to invest. Right. Um, which on the one hand is awesome. But on the other hand, that's I mean, that's not a really repeatable thing. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, listeners, this is the perfect opportunity to introduce a new sponsor here on ACQ2, Quarter. Their new product, Quarter Pro, launched about a year ago and is already adopted by several Fortune 500 companies and some of the world's largest hedge funds and equity research departments. 
Yeah, this research platform is transforming the way qualitative public market research is conducted. Here's how Quarter Pro works. You can get every piece of first-party information from public companies all in one single place. That's live earnings calls with real-time transcripts, company filings, slide decks, and more. Quarter Pro has built a world-class user interface for this. Yep. Let's say you're an investor or a podcaster, and you've got the use case where you need to look up a company such as Novo Nordisk, Hermes, or Visa. You can open their platform and search Guidance or Market Outlook. Quarter Pro then immediately identifies all instances where a company has historically mentioned and discussed these topics in all of their IR-related communications. Or here's another pretty crazy thing they've done that's difficult to get anywhere else. You can actually search through literally every individual slide in Quarter's database, covering 9,000 public companies and millions of slides for any keyword mentioned based on Quarter's AI capabilities. This truly makes it easier than ever to conduct qualitative analysis of entire industry value chains and specific companies. So whether you're an equity research analyst, an asset manager, or an investor relations professional, this platform will help you increase your productivity through their live call, transcript components, AI-powered summaries, and a feature along allowing you to visualize the entire timeline and changes of specific slides throughout quarters. Quarter also offers their database as an API solution. This enables other companies such as trading and research platforms, as well as AI and LLM companies to build custom solutions and integrate this database into their offerings or add functionality on top of the data. Yep. To find out why leading companies globally are choosing Quarter Pro in their day-to-day work and to experience the platform firsthand, request a personal demo by visiting quarter.com slash acquired. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R, no E, Q-U-A-R-T-R dot com slash acquired. Or click the link in the show notes to get the personal demo from the Quarter team. Our thanks to Quarter. All right, so Doug, how did we get here? So why are we in this place where there's two to $300 million deployed per year in this early stage funding in in clean tech? Uh, Great question. Uh, And I'll answer in a probably cartoonishly simple way. Uh, but I, I mean, the big story is, I mean, let's start with the good news. A lot of the public investments in uh, clean energy R&D have really paid off if you look at the past 50 years or if you look at you know, post-war. So um, uh, the cost of building a wind turbine has plummeted. The cost of building a photovoltaic panel, the cost of lithium-ion batteries, which are essential for electric cars taking off, LED lighting has has, uh, has gotten incredibly cheap relative to less than a decade ago. So mm-hmm. there are these fundamental innovations in physics, um, some of them dating back to you know, the 50s or earlier, um, that are finally really getting cost competitive. And, 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 and that's contributing to that $300 billion in deployment we talked about. So, um, so we have these precedents for early stage R&D, some, you know, whether it was at Bell Labs or at a university, um, ultimately uh, getting to commercial scale and the capital markets opening up. Mm-hmm. Um, the bad news is that uh, our standard model that we think of in, in the current era for how you fund some kind of breakthrough innovation is venture capital. And venture capital got really interested in, uh, in climate solutions and clean energy technologies around 2006, 2007, when... Mm-hmm. Uh, gas prices were really high and they were every forecaster said they were going to get higher um, when it looked like policy was moving in the right direction um, you know that we were you know that it would be insane to imagine that uh, the United States and other countries wouldn't be figuring out a way to do a carbon tax or some kind of carbon pricing at some point in the very near future mm-hmm. um, and John Doerr and I mean not to single him out but lots of uh, lots of really uh, brand name investors said you know we we, this is a, this is the this is a huge opportunity, and we got to get in. Um, well, and Kleiner had their a whole separate fund within Kleiner called the Green Growth Fund, right. For many years, right. Um, and then it all fell off a cliff, um, and that happened for a lot of reasons that are exogenous, like you know the Great Recession. <laughs> um, but it's it's entirely possible that even without a recession, um, things wouldn't have uh, gone so well. I mean, for one thing, ironically, another uh, big uh, public R&D success story is uh, fracking and the you know, shale oil revolution. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that started as, a, as some uh, publicly funded research in the 70s and 80s and onward, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, 
really hit its stride in just the last decade to now the United States being a huge global oil producer, uh, natural gas producer. Um, And so all those predictions about global cost of of, uh, petroleum just were totally wrong. And so we live in a world Mm -hmm. where it's even harder to to be competitive with um, with uh, fossil fuels, whether whether you're dealing with something on the electricity side or on the um, transportation side. Um, mm. But but I, I really believe that uh, there's even more fundamental problems, which is that um, VC as as it has evolved since the '70s um, just isn't a good fit for uh, doing something innovative in physics or chemistry um, or even some certain kinds of biology, unless you're looking at uh, solving something that relates to human health or agriculture. Um, you know, if you, if you want to do something innovative in computer science or, or biology for human health, you have sources of funding. It's called, like you said, it's called, you know, most VC plus, you know, a significant chunk that goes to biotech and device medical devices. Um, and, and Doug, can you talk about why that is? So like the capital structure of venture, why doesn't it make right. sense if you want to do a fundamental innovation in physics? Well, I mean, I mean, th- let's think about uh, how you, how you, you know, all, all the, all the companies you've profiled on this show, presumably um, mm-hmm. it's, it's not cheap to, uh, to scale a, a software company. Um, it takes a lot of capital. Um, but you can typically do it within 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, you get, you know, and, and the investors kind of know from the earliest stages onward, wh- how, how things are going. So if, uh, if, <laughs> if you get, if you yeah. raise a seed stage and like you get no traction, it's over. Right. It's a really key piece. Like it's not even just the amount of capital because it takes a huge amount of capital, like you said, to right. scale, you know, even software companies these days, but it's that you, you can, uh, you know, dip the oil stick in, if you will, to use a bad metaphor for this episode <laughs> uh, yeah. along the way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, and D- David, ahead. it's funny, you and I have lamented in the past, like, uh, it's not as much lamented, but reflected on what a long game we're in, uh, both in startups and in venture that, you know, startups are sort of like, it's really five years before you sort of know if, if uh, um, you know, before you start to see anything. Venture can be 10 to 20 before you really know over the couple of funds if your strategy is really an effective one. Um, it, it, you know, at least you can check in 18 months into these companies and be like, well, right. how's it been so far? It's, uh, right. it's, it's a whole different scenario if it's, you know, we're, we're trying to fundamentally discover a new battery technology. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, you've got to pour all that, you've got to pour the same or more capital into that company, but you won't know if it has a prayer until years in. Um, and then even if the technology works now, how do you get the, uh, the economics right when you try to go to industrial scale? Um, and why, uh, I don't know if you're about to go here, but something I've always wondered, maybe you can help us and our, our listeners with is why is that? Like, why is it so hard to, you know, I mean, like in, in tech, you know, we think even fundamental technological advances, like our, our previous main episode, um, was about arm, uh, and developing, you know, the risk architecture for chipsets. Like that was done by a team of, you know, 12 engineers in Cambridge, you know, over the course of like a couple months. And then they figured out that the technology worked, right? Like what, right. what is it about these other, you know, these, uh, energy technologies that just make it take so much longer? Uh, well, I think fundamentally atoms are more surprising and messier than bits. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to some extent, um, everything I just said, the uh, the the obvious counter would be, well, what about biotech? Um, because if I'm trying to design a new drug, uh, uh, you know, or some other new therapy, um, I'm dealing in the very very messy world of biology. Uh, I, I I had a, I heard a great line from a uh, biotech CEO I met uh, a while back who said. Um, you know, I, I, I run a biotech company. I'm just like uh, any other company, except I'm unburdened by revenue. <laughs> <laughs> right? like, like a software company can take a long time to be profitable, but a, a biotech company can take a long time to generate a dollar of revenue. And that's because you have to show that it works in humans and you have to go through all these clinical trials. Hmm. Um, but therein lies the kind of uh, 
the kind of uh, uh, um, kind of weird and miraculous trick that allows biotech to fit into the VC model, which is that at the end of the rainbow, um, you get uh, monopoly rights to a mm. therapy that has been clinically demonstrated to improve some dimension of health in human beings. And you get, well, probably not all 20 years, but you get a pretty healthy amount of time to explain. Right. Whereas versus at the end of the solar panel rainbow, you get like intense competition and driving down everything to commodities and like no profits whatsoever. Exactly. It's like, congratulations. Now you're competing with global oil prices or, um, you know, heavily subsidized Chinese solar panels or, you know, every, you know, electrons are fungible. And so you're competing with like every other source of electrons, every other source of hydrocarbons. Um, so that pot of gold is not really visible. Um, and there are almost no really great, I mean, think about all the unicorns you can point to in, uh, uh, in software. I mean, the, and the, that number is, is just going up, up into the right. And, uh, and if you're paying attention to biotech, there's all kinds of incredible IPOs and acquisitions going on all the time. It's mm. really hard to find uh, those kinds of um, success stories in you know, physics or chemistry or you know, bioengineering for fuels um, that that you need both to make the the emotional and the you know rigorous economic mm. case for massive uh, upstream investment. It's interesting, you know, I, I was, so the, the framework to think about sort of uh, um, investable opportunities in clean tech really is uh, where, where does it look more like biotech where it does take an enormous amount of money to develop and any single one will probably fail. But let's say you invest an enormous amount of money in 10 different promising companies, they would have to have the profile that they have that, that pot of gold at the end. And so it can't be, right. hey, we're trying to produce a solar panel that is still going to compete against you know, natural gas. It has to be, uh, we're going to create a technology that enables some entirely n- new use case and new market um, uh, that isn't directly competitive in a commoditized way. And the thing that comes to mind that I, I keep thinking on is there's all sorts of things that are impossible right now because batteries have not had a, a step function uh, of, of improvement in the last 30 years. It's been this sort of like 10 to 15% year over year of lithium ion, you know, Apple's right. pushing the ball forward, Tesla's pushing the ball forward. But like, there's no way, the biggest problem in energy right now is uh, it's inefficient to transfer it and it's really, really inefficient to store it. So like if you go generate a bunch of energy by capturing geothermal in Iceland, there's basically no way to like capture that. What are you going to do? Charge up a bunch of batteries and ship it across a barge to the, to Europe? Like it's, it's right. hard to move, the, hard to store. The global, the global energy sneaker net. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so it does feel like you, you sort of have to figure out like what, what technology are we skating after that does have that sort of monopoly right baked into uh, the fact that yeah. it's, it's not a commodity. Right. And, and look, I mean, it's great news that the cost of lithium ion batteries is going down. And there's, there's this super unproductive debate in energy circles between those who say, that's all we need. And we can just, you know, keep bringing down the, the manufacturing cost of existing technologies. And then those who say, no, that'll never get us there. If we don't invent some whiz bang new thing, we're dead. Um, I would say we need to be running hard at both, um, pretty obviously. Uh, because who knows? Um, but the, the, the terrifying thing among other, many other terrifying things uh, that that we're talking about today is that if we're basically not investing in any or, you know, or, or, or scarcely any, um, fundamentally new technologies, then where are we going to be in 10, 20 years? Um, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's too late to plant the tree. Um, and so we need to be thinking on those timescales. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like, like, like we were saying, you know, that we, we've, uh, the, the, the modern VC model isn't that old. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's what in, in, in some ways invented in the sixties and really the cash started to pile in, in the mid nineties. Right. And do you know, do you know what the policy change was that really allowed it to happen? No. Oh, this is a, this is a great story. Uh, it's so obscure. There's like, do you know what ERISA is? 
No, David, yes. do you know this? <laughs> Being a fund manager now. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but the yeah, I don't know Retirement the Income Security Act. Um, it's the it's the federal law that governs uh, like you know the investment of pensions. Uh, oh. For, and so for for a long time, uh, if you were a if you were a you know pension fund manager with any nexus to the federal government, you you had to be extremely conservative in what you invested in. Um, and that started to change. I, I forget exactly when, but I think it was in the 70s um, when the Department of Labor, I don't know if it was Congress or the Department of Labor, clearly I need to get the story straight, but uh, something, something was issued called the prudent man rule, um, which basically said, um, it's okay to invest part of your portfolio in risky things as long as that's what a prudent person mm. would do. And so that <laughs> opened the door to for, for for the LPs of the world to start investing in yeah, private equity funds and hedge funds and venture capital funds. And so, you know, it's not... The irony is yeah. now in as a fund manager in venture, you don't want ERISA <laughs> uh, yeah. LPs because it, it comes with FOIA, which is the oh, Freedom of Information right, yeah. Act. Um which all public pensions uh, are subject to, uh, which means to close, disclosing um, investment performance and returns, which many VCs don't want to do. Oh, yeah. You, you wouldn't want anyone to know that. Reasons. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no. yeah, there, there is an irony there. Well, I mean, but that's the irony. Very, so much of what we see around us usually has its origins in some kind of public investment. But, yeah. um, but once a new industry is created or a you know, new Fortune 50 company is created, none of the, n- nobody wants to really... Uh, 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 describe their origin story as like a taxpayer funded. Yeah. Well, this policy uh, changed and then, uh, yeah. Yeah. That's actually super interesting. You're totally right. I, I'd never thought about that, but that, uh, because a lot of those early venture funds were, it, it was public pensions that were the LPs behind them. Right. And then, you know, prove the, prove the model, get great returns. And now it's just part of the landscape. Um, and still yeah. to this day, I mean, with Utimco and CalPERS, I mean, there's still a, a, still an enormous number of, of yes. LPs that are, or an LP capital right. that is that is from public yeah. pension funds. Utimco is different because it's a university it, endowment. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, CalPERS and um, the uh, it's Canadian actually, but um, OMERS, the Ontario, yeah. whatever. Uh, anyway, um, uh, lar- also a large pension fund, big, big funder of VC firms. Right. And so we, um, you know, back to what I was working on a couple of years back, because uh, it's, it's a good segue. I mean, we, we talked to a lot of these LPs um, and, uh, you know, we weren't really able to change ERISA, but um, we did we did try to do what we could through executive actions uh, to try to create some new incentives for capital to flow all the way upstream to uh Mm-hmm. to clean energy, you know, novel clean energy technologies. And so that was the, that was this uh, initiative we called the clean energy investment initiative, which involves some policy changes and involves some private sector commitments, including by um, big pension funds. Um, so, you know, on the private sector side, we had a bunch of funds uh, uh, include, and it's a banks uh, committing, not in an enforceable way, but in a aspirational and, and I think realistic way uh, about $4 billion, uh, to, um, you know, over the next several years, uh, to invest in early stage technologies and clean energy. Um, and then we, and then we tried to do our part as the executive branch with some policy changes. And some of those things you're probably familiar with. I mean, they're, they're really cool, um, you know, federal energy programs like ARPA-E. Um, I'm not saying that we created ARPA-E in 2015. It's, It's been around since the beginning of the Obama administration was actually created under the Bush administration. Um, yeah, but, uh, yeah, Doug, that's actually worth a little bit of a deep dive. So you mentioned RPE earlier and when you and I had coffee, I hadn't, I hadn't really, I think I had heard of it, but I didn't know really anything about it. What is it? Why should we be optimistic about it? Um, why does it sound like DARPA? Sure. <laughs> it sounds like DARPA on purpose. <laughs> uh, so DARPA for, for the LPs who may not uh, be familiar with it is the defense advanced research project agency. And it has a wonderful history. Do you know, do you know what, uh, what, when and why DARPA was created? Uh, it feels like a world war, but I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, well, soon, soon after world war two, um, when the, it was actually the cold war, uh, yeah. that was yeah. the direct antecedent. So, so, uh, um, Sputnik, uh, was the, uh, was the trigger. Uh, huh. Sputnik happened mm. and everyone in America 
freaked out. Um, and uh, the Department of Defense and its allies said, never again will we be surprised by uh, this kind of techno- technological uh, leapfrogging. Interesting. Um, and so DARPA was created and funded to both anticipate and create technological surprise. That's their mission. <laughs> um, <I understand. laughs> and so... So DARPA gets a fair chunk of money. I mean, it's 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 yeah. it's modest compared to the size of the defense budget, but um, and and it's not a lab in and of itself. It's really talented program managers who come in from universities and from private industry for typically for five year hitches um, and uh, create a program and run a funding competition and guide the funding recipients towards some goal. So mm-hmm. you know, and RPG, actually, this is. This, yeah, this is a total aside, but um, Steve Blank, uh, you know, of uh, yeah. Lean Startup fame and and the like, he has a great talk. He may have even written a uh, book or The Secret or History of Silicon it. Valley. Yeah, exactly. That explains all this. It's it's amazing. It really, you know, it does come from DARPA. Uh, yeah, that's great. So, I mean, DARPA is credited with um, creating ARPANET, which was the precursor to the internet, um, uh, and stealth technology, and... Uh, uh, I mean, I'm I'm going to leave out all kinds of things. Um, but more recently, uh, they you know DARPA jump started uh, autonomous vehicles with a prize uh, about 10, 15 years ago. Um, and then uh, there's actually some terrific coverage recently of uh, of the amazing things DARPA has been doing with robotic prosthetic arms um, and direct mm-hmm. neural connections. So I mean, it's 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 the sci-fi uh, part of the Department of Defense. And so uh, a decade or so ago, policymakers started thinking, well. We, you know, if, if DARPA, if this DARPA model has been so successful at creating breakthrough technologies as a, as a government mini agency, we clearly need the same thing for energy mm. and not just defense. Um, so we should consciously model uh, a new uh, unit within the Department of Energy uh, that will also be an advanced research project agency. So basically, mm. just you know, straight analogy, you know, DARPA is to the Department of Defense as ARPA-E is to the Department of Energy. It's in a different building. It has totally different program managers. It has totally different leadership. Hmm. It has all, all, all these special authorities from Congress to, um, to be more flexible and, uh, and take bigger risks. Um, and so everyone loves ARPA-E, uh, Democrats, Republicans, uh, private sector, public sector. Um, it's a terrific uh, agency. It has really talented people. It's still going gangbusters. Uh, and it even got a bit of a funding increase uh, in the last budget, even though the Trump budget proposed to zero it out. Um, <laughs> wow. Fun. <laughs> Fun so, times. Uh, so Wait, and, for, and, all, for all those who are listening who, uh, <laughs> who want to have like, uh, who, who think about contributing to uh, public service at some point in the future, I do want to recommend uh, being a program manager at RPE or, or any, or, you know, any number of other, um, uh, government agencies at some point now or in the future, because you get to control, you know, 10 to $50 million and, uh, steer it towards a tough, uh, uh, technology problem. It's, it's like being a private sector investor, but yeah. with public money taking much bigger bets. Um, well, and, yeah. okay. So I, I have one quick comment and, and then a question, which you basically answered, but I just want to put a fine point on it. Um, I mean, the comment is, yeah, like, uh, the secret history of Silicon Valley, you know, shows better than, you know, anything. And and even the venture capital history we've been talking about that like policy <laughs> has a huge impact on business and technology. Yes, uh, often unintended. <laughs> yeah, which we don't underscore enough on this show. Um but but my question is so at RPE, what is the main thing they're doing? Are they are they are these the the agency and these program managers, are they deploying capital to researchers? Good question. So, I mean, it's a funding agency. It's like the National Science Foundation. Um, you know, they're not doing any of the research in-house. They will, uh, you know, you have, a, you have a program manager who's empowered to come up with a theme uh, and, a, and a solicitation for ideas. And so, uh, you know, there's like, I mean, to give you one example, some of them are the kinds of things you'd imagine. Like there's a, there's a, you know, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of $50 million uh, funding opportunity for projects to advance uh, nuclear fusion, and there's other ones uh, for uh, you know for different transportation technologies. There's there's a couple that seem kind of out of left field until you start to think about it. Like um, there was recently a, a program uh, or you know a funding opportunity for teleconferencing technology, breakthrough teleconferencing technologies. Why? Well, because that's a key to reducing air travel. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and then every couple of years they do an open competition where 
uh, RPE is not specifying the technology need uh, and anyone with a, you know, re- you know remotely relevant uh, energy technology across the board can can apply for funds. And so the, the winners of these funds are typically uh, university teams or startups or uh, national laboratories or occasionally uh, large companies. Um, so hmm. anybody can compete um, and uh, there's a peer review process and then uh, uh, you, know, you probably get, I don't know, like a dozen or so winners within each program and then um, they have three years to uh, uh, to achieve their technical and uh, uh, and economic objectives and the program manager kind of coaches them through that. Hmm. Super cool. Um, yeah. and, and it is, you know, this is, as, as you mentioned, like the DARPA challenge that DARPA had with autonomous vehicles, right. shoot, I was in college. I remember, you know, I had friends who were on, you know, Princeton's DARPA team, like DARPA mm-hmm. challenge team. And, uh, yeah, it's out of that. You draw a direct line to Tesla autopilot, Waymo, you know, all everything going on yep. that new company Aurora just raised $500 million today. They're all the same people that were competing in that DARPA challenge. Right. That was a particularly catalytic price for sure. Um, but I also want to add, I mean, there's, you know, ARPA-E is, I think justifiably a really, uh, bright shining object. Um, but there's all kinds of other stuff going on in the federal government, uh, that's advancing, uh, uh, clean energy innovation with a, with a commercial end in mind. I mean, there's, there's a different part of the department of energy that, um, was traditionally just kind of the solar technology office, but was, both rebranded and I think fundamentally reshaped as uh, something called Sunshot hmm. um, in the Obama administration, which had it's an awesome a very clear. Oh, have you, have you like, do you know the Sunshot story? I don't know anything about it, but I mean, it's I'll, I'll, Moonshot, I'll give, but yeah, it's a great name. Yeah, so it's, yeah, it's a play on Moonshot. It was um, and uh, it still it still exists. Um, and the basic idea was, uh, well, look, solar solar panel costs are falling, but honestly, um, the the cost of the panels is is becoming less and less important. Um, if you look at the total cost of a solar panel, uh, it's it's all kinds of soft costs. Um, so I mean, even if even if you got the even if you got the cost of the hardware down to zero, it still wouldn't be cheap enough to mm. at least at the time. It still wouldn't be cheap enough to compete mm. with um, with incumbent uh, energy sources. And so um, because and so of installation and transmission, installation and yeah, and, and you know all all these other things. Um, customer acquisition. Um, and so the goal of Sunshot was let's get uh, the cost of installed solar down to a dollar a watt uh, in the next X years. Um, and we're actually on track as, a, as an economy to achieve that. It's not entirely because of the Department of Energy Sunshot program, but they certainly helped a lot. And it, and it showed how you can, um, you can, I think it was a very important and um, important test case for how you can do government funded R and D because I mean, Sunshot's organized to, to, to a large extent, just like we talked about RPE, you have program managers who define, you know, define different funding opportunities and, and try to, uh, you know, provide resources and guidance to the, to the, uh, researcher teams who get the money. Um, but I think this was one of the first and best examples of, uh, of a government program with a, you know, clear and compelling, uh, uh, economic, end game in mind mm-hmm. you know it wasn't just like let's make solar cheaper or mm-hmm. let's fund great solar technology it's like economy-wide we want you know we, we know we know where we need to go to make this technology to make this whole range of technologies competitive and so let's make a bunch of bets mm-hmm. um, in the form of different research projects and, and startups um, and they did they did technology plays and they also did software play. i mean so they did hardware plays and they, they did software plays um, and, and innovate a lot of stuff. So it's, it's not just RPE. There's good stuff going on. There's good stuff at the National Science Foundation. There's good stuff at NASA. It's good stuff at the Department of Defense. Steve Blank deserves a lot of credit for helping the National Science Foundation uh, turn Lean Startup into a program for scientists mm-hmm. called ICOR, which is now also with the Department of Energy and a bunch of other agencies. Um, so, yeah, I could go on. And then, and then um, I also wanted to just while we're talking about good news, <laughs> before we get back into uh, despair, um, you know, while we're talking about kind of fund incentives uh, and CalPERS and things like that, we were able to do some super wonky things that I hope have an impact, at least in theory they should, which is that, uh, you know, w- what levers does the Department of Treasury have to 
change how innovation is financed? Well, um, they can clarify uh, if you're a philanthropy, when and how you can use both your endowment funds for riskier investments and your philanthropic funds for um, maybe some forward-leaning, unusual investments. Hmm. Um, and so they and so they came out with new policies on both of those fronts. So with your endowment, it's called a mission-related investment, and with a with your uh, with your grant dollars, it's called a program-related investment. And these are kind of like weird transactions for most foundations. They're scary. They're not sure if the IRS is going to come down on them if they stray outside right. sort of traditional investments. Um, and this was a way to say, no, you you can you can be a little bolder. You can be a little more experimental. You can invest in things that align with your mission that aren't, um, you know, the usual, just like hand over all your money to, uh, you know, to BlackRock and (laughs) let them put it in Mm -hmm. traditional investment strategies. Um, and, uh, and then we also had, uh, uh, the department of labor, um, uh, uh, put out new guidance that would, uh, apply to some of the, you know, ERISA, uh, subject, uh, funds as well. That's like, it's okay to do environmental, social and governance standards. Mm -hmm. Um, that's not going to get you in trouble. Um, and that was something that a lot of the impact investing community was really clamoring for. Yeah. So again, I mean, I, I wish I could, I, I mean, I, I should have done some more research before the show so I could say, and the reports show that this is increased funding by X. I, I actually don't know the answer because I haven't been uh, paying as close attention to this in the last year or so, but well, um, it's interesting. I mean, I think those are the kinds of levers made. that you try to pull when you don't have a Congress that's willing to do anything. <laughs> I think the point you made earlier too, when we were talking about, you know, the secret history of Silicon Valley and DARPA and whatnot is like, you need to be planting the trees now. Right. And regardless of whatever results there have been since, you know, the mid 2010s, like it's not long enough, you know, uh, it took, right. um, it, even the DARPA challenge is perfect. I mean, it was the early two thousands when the DARPA challenge was happening and we're only just seeing like industry come out of it now, you know? Right. This gets to sort of the big question that I, I wanted to pose to you, Doug, to kind of put a point on all of this. So obviously we're in a place where uh, um, sort of uh, every sane and educated and or, uh, you know, willing to believe, believe the facts, facts person <laughs> realizes that like we are, we are headed in a really dangerous direction faster than ever now uh, in a very scarily near time frame, you know, in, in our lives and our children's lives. And so something big needs to change. Uh, if if you could sort of be the architect of a system that um, you know changed uh, uh, that set up the right incentives for dollars to flow to the right places and 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 how much money needs to flow where and what types of investments should people be making and where what's public and what's private like wh- what do you think needs to change and and what are um, really some the, the what are the catalysts here that need to set something in yeah. motion? Yeah, that's the question. Thank you for asking it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, there, there's a bunch of things that are obviously good and need to happen. So we, we definitely need more, more money, more public R&D funding. That's always good. Uh, fortunately, against all odds, that number is going in the right direction and not the wrong direction even now, um, mm. which just shows that there's more bipartisan support in Congress uh, for, uh, for government-funded R&D uh, than one might have expected despite what the current administration might think. Um, and globally, the, the, the numbers going up thanks to a you know, set of commitments that President Obama and Bill Gates uh, and a number of other world leaders uh, and uh, private investors uh, brokered uh, in 2015 mm. called Mission Innovation. Um, there's, it's also, you know, we, we can't have enough uh, really good innovative commercialization models to, to take uh, promising technologies across this chasm of death from government-funded science project to uh, venture-backable technology. Um, and actually, um, the, the organization that Bill Gates has, has, uh, has, has recently spun up called Breakthrough Energy. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it, there's, there's a venture fund that we talked about, but there's also a bunch of other activities they're doing. Uh, they just released a report just a couple of days ago, I think, that's, that's terrific and has all kinds of really great ideas uh, about... Um, all kinds of innovative commercialization models at the state and federal level, at the private sector level. If you want to see the whole menu, I'm not going to claim it for myself. Just go read the executive summary. It's great. <laughs> um, but that's all on the supply side. Um, and that's all, you know, creating more shots right. on goal. 
um, and uh, and making them a little less likely to fail in the earliest stages. Mm-hmm. Um, but everything we've talked about so far is really about fundamentally reshaping demand. Um, that that you know, like you said, a SaaS company or an AI company or a or a drug company, they they can take advantage of jackpot economics. Mm-hmm. There's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. You want to solve a problem in physics or chemistry or biology that has nothing to do with human health? Uh, where where's the jackpot? Right. Um, what's what's where, the incentive alignment for, are commodities. for investment yeah. dollars to flow there? Yeah, and that's among the many things that keeps me up at night. Is that is that I, I don't I, I don't know how. I certainly don't see anything happening right now that gives me immense confidence that that fundamental uh, mismatch uh, is going to be cured like tomorrow. Um, There are some really interesting examples of how it can work. And, uh, and, and, and hopefully, um, you know, these will be uh, scaled up. And, and, and I should say that, I mean, the other thing, it's not just about capital, it's about talent. Yeah. I mean, I mean, like, you know, I mean, like how many how many companies is Pioneer Square Labs interested in backing that are doing anything like we're mm-hmm. talking about? I, I'm thinking approximately zero, um, and that's rational. Yep. <laughs> you know, it's it's, it's not that it's not yeah. that right. I mean, and think about everyone who you know has the fire to become an entrepreneur and change the world and is graduating from college or dropping out of college or you know like swirling around Seattle looking for the next big thing. I mean. I, I would say there's an enormous number of people who have who are talented entrepreneurs or could become talented entrepreneurs who care deeply about climate change and are not going to go for it because, uh, I mean, entrepreneurship is risky enough. It's so mm-hmm. funny as you're as you're saying this right now. I'm thinking about like I'm, I'm at the sort of phase of my life where I'm trying to figure out what I do for work, and and then there's sort of the the passion areas that I have for things that are important and impactful to me and trying hard to, to bridge that gap. And climate is an enormous one. And it is shockingly hard to uh, somehow take the work that we do in, you know, innovation, technology and funding and, and apply that to this area. And uh, uh, I'm encouraged by, you know, that there, there's, um, all sorts of even pure software solutions where you could do things like um, use machine learning to optimize the uh, layout of a wind farm or, you know, there's all sorts of like, even like typical B2B SaaS companies that you could start that are focused on improving the yield of a lot of these technologies. But actually, supposedly uh, this was uh, the first project that Deep that DeepMind did within Google after they acquired it was Mm -hmm. optimize Google's uh, data center energy consumption. And I think um, actually that that paid back something like the savings from that were so impactful that they paid back the entire cost of the acquisition. Yes. Yeah. Like that was a really cool. It like 40%. It was incredible. Yeah. Wow. Um, so so but, Doug, I would, you know, yeah. I, I would push back on like how, how many are, you know, uh, organizations with capital interested in funding. Like, you know, I, 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 I'd love to figure out how to make the better case for that. You know, I, I, and I think, yeah. And I mean, I, I, and I think, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I, I, I think I'm, I'm, uh, maybe I'm foolish cause you spent a lot more time in this than, than me, but like, I'm definitely optimistic that, uh, um, there are ways to throw two and $3 million at a lot of these things and take, you know, a lot of the businesses that we start are not actually technology innovations. They're applying a sort of modern business model and modern distribution to, you know, table technology that's been around five or 10 years and solving a, a, a new, it's, it's really a business model innovation. And so I do wonder yeah. if there's a lot of those to be had that can be seriously impactful, um, on, uh, on energy. Yeah. I mean, I, I would, let's, let's, Let's end on like, you know, an up note <laughs> and a kind of question mark. I mean, the up note is, yes, there are endless problems to solve and scale right now with the existing VC model. And, uh, and I hope that lots of hundreds of really talented people and foresighted investors uh, continue to go after them. Um, it, it, this is not a time to despair. There are, there are more nests and O powers and, uh, uh, and, uh, and even more, uh, you know, fundamental hardware oriented companies to, to start and grow and let's, let's do it. Let's flood the zone. Um, at, uh, go ahead. Oh, well, I was gonna, I, I have a, a very specific question for you, but, but, um, keep going. <laughs> you, you had a, okay. you had a, but or an and there. Okay, well, but at the same yeah. time, like we need to be at net carbon, uh, zero by mid century. Um, and so 
we need all that activity to happen, but it's not enough. Yeah. We have to plant a lot more trees right now mm-hmm. and a lot more uh, ambitious trees. If my mm-hmm. metaphor is falling apart. Um, you know, we need to have air travel be net uh, net net carbon uh, zero. I mean, mm-hmm. nobody knows how to do that yet. Yeah, we need to have ocean shipping. I mean, yeah, right. Ocean shipping needs to be net carbon zero. Buildings making cement, making steel. We need to figure out how to suck carbon out of the atmosphere because there's you know because we're running out of options. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and so, how do you get uh, uh, the the capital markets, particularly? I'm not. I'm not. It's not that I want to give up on VC. I just think that um, the the pot of gold doesn't exist. And so, how do you conjure it into existence? Um, so, I don't. I don't have the perfect answer, but I think there are some promising models out there that I hope people are thinking about. Um, so, I would put them all under the category of you know demand demand pull yeah. as opposed to supply. Well, okay. So, so, so this is my yeah. my very specific question for you. Uh, you know, is a company that I think is probably now our second most popular episode on Acquired ever um, that kind of, you know, in, in many ways fits the bill of everything you're talking about. And that's Tesla. Um, mm-hmm. You know, what uh, when you were in the administration and and now thinking about that, like, is because uh, here's a company that uh, the stated goal, you know, Elon's goal is to reduce, you know, to uh, accelerate uh, clean energy adoption and transform the auto industry um, and uh, do it by creating an end user product that uh, drives wild demand. Uh, and he's kind of done all those things. Um, is that a good model or or not? Yeah. <laughs> uh. I mean, so far so good. <laughs> Although the last year has been a little bit rocky, um, I mean, I think that uh, yes, making becoming independently wealthy uh, based on uh, PayPal and then plowing all your money into something that nobody thinks is going to work, and then being like talented enough and hiring enough incredibly talented people to survive a bunch of near death experiences, <laughs> and then getting. Government loans in the in the in the depths of the uh, Great Recession that you then pay back and disclaim because it's bad optics, um, and then uh, you know, and then and then you know somehow navigating uh, you know the uh, the press and the capital markets and the incredible difficulty of of, uh, of new manufacturing processes, and there and thereby basically creating a world in which even if you fail, the auto majors are now committed to this yep. path. I mean. Hats off. I mean, that's awesome. <laughs> this was Tesla part two right here. Um, right, right. Well, I guess what, what's interesting um, where I'm going with this is like that story, the Tesla journey, you know, as crazy and wild as it is, it's no crazier than any other story of a company we tell on Acquired. And, um, you know, right. that's what the venture capital and the startup model is meant to enable. Um, and, uh, you know, it just so happened that Elon funded it himself to start. But, uh especially now in a post Tesla world, like the next Teslas are going to be funded by venture capital, um, you know, in whatever. Well, the the next Teslas, what do you mean by that? Oh, in in whatever. Do you mean the next? Like, um, like uh, for instance, uh, there's a company called boom, uh, which is, uh, building a new supersonic jet. Uh, now I don't know how they're thinking about energy, right. But like the VC community is certainly going into air travel and, uh, you know, Ben's talked about, you know, uh, EV tall, right. Electronic, vertical takeoff and like landing. landing vehicles yeah um mm-hmm. uh uh that's being funded by the vc community and uh uber right like uber itself you know uh is is yeah. funding that so um you know anyway i guess that's my hopeful <laughs> ending point yeah no there, there are there are there are but there are um lots of reasons to hope but it all we all need we need more of it mm-hmm. and uh and my point totally. about uh the tesla story is that let's not forget that I mean, basically, he was spending his own money in the beginning, yep, and it was, yep. you know, by definition, that's stupid money. That's that's money that um, is not repeatable for for you know in most other contexts. And he was willing to lose it all, um, and it turned out to be a really good bet, both for him and 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 the world. Yep. <laughs> I I mean, the the story's still not over, but so far so good. Like I said, um, like that's not something that we can tell a young entrepreneur. Or a you know experienced entrepreneur who wants to do something new and say, yeah, yeah, just just spend your uh, <laughs> just spend your entire net worth on this thing that nobody says is going to work. Yeah. Um, so uh, 
So back to this, the, the promising uh, world of demand pull mechanisms. If you can come up with a sexier name for it, please let me know because uh, uh, that's not it. But um, well, it, start, it starts, you know, the one, one great example is the DARPA Autonomous Vehicle Challenge. You know, yeah. The prize is a very small scale, but potentially high impact demand pull where yeah. you basically say, um, we're putting out, a, you know, XPRIZE has pioneered this as well. Here's a pot of money. It's usually sub 100 million, uh, sometimes sub 10 million. But, but it's very clear who wins, but it's completely technology agnostic. Mm-hmm. And, um, and when it works well, even if the winner, you know, still is really buggy, um, it shows that there's a path to a big market. And so people start to pile on. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly not every, you know, most prizes do not end with that incredible, you know, decades long success story. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the Lunar X prize is, is actually... Uh, bearing some fruit right now with uh, you know small rockets and and uh, and and small satellites um, uh, really taking off and getting more private capital. So that's that's kind of like the sexy example that everybody kind of knows. Mm-hmm. Um, another one, not to dwell on Elon Musk uh, too much in this episode, but um, if you want to go beyond prizes, you can look at milestone payments. So SpaceX would not exist uh, if NASA hadn't blown up its usual contractor process mm-hmm. um yeah, the, and set yeah go it's ahead it's funny i was going to take us home here but like do you want to take a couple minutes doug and explain old world new world with with uh, uh that the transformation of nasa there and yeah. how the funding allocation changed sure well i mean i wish it was old world new world i mean i i mean we'll, we'll, we'll see if that transition actually happens but yeah i mean traditionally if you think about apollo or you know any or, or the space shuttle or any big nasa program um basically nasa uh put out a uh, set of requirements and a, a giant uh, aerospace contractor won the contract, whether it was Northrop Grumman or or Boeing or, you know, na- you name it, there's only a handful of them. And then they get something delightful called cost plus, which is <laughs> go build the thing and we'll pay you for the cost of building a thing plus a guaranteed profit margin. Um, so guess what incentive that sets up? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, the James Webb, the James Webb telescope is still grounded at Goddard Space Center, not far from where I live, um, because it's like over budget and, uh, and, you know, and way beyond its launch schedule. And, you know, like if the, if the contractor screws up, you know, whatever, like they still get paid. Um, so the innovation with, uh, with um, this, uh, you know, commercial cargo program that NASA launched during the Obama administration, uh, was uh, you know they put out the competition, but um, but you had to achieve certain actual practical milestones to get the uh, the next slug of money, mm-hmm. and then you had to do something else to get the next slug of money, and something else to get the next slug of money. So it would very much mimic like a VC round, um, but the um, but the requirements were not over specified. It's like we don't you know your, the design is up to you. Uh, you know, aerospace company, which happened to be SpaceX. And I think a a couple of other companies, um, you just need to show that you can complete, you know, test number one successfully. And then you need to show that you can get a a empty capsule to the space station. Then you need to show that you can get cargo to the space station. And then you kind of get more contracts and more milestone payments, uh, the more you succeed. Um, so that's some, and, and that, again, that's, that's, uh, that is also basically how biotech works. I mean, the, the three clinical trials of the FDA are basically, um, effectively three milestones that you can raise money off of. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the question is like, how can you design stuff like that for air travel and ocean shipping and buildings and cement manufacturing <laughs> and carbon removal? Um, I, I'd love to see more of that. Um, and, uh, and I think the kind of, uh, the dream is that you have something even, you know, really big, like uh, something called an advanced market commitment, um, which is where, you know, whether it's government buyers or, or pri- more likely private sector buyers say, um, if you can make a jet fuel that meets the following specs and that's verified by a neutral technological uh, technical arbiter, um, then you get a billion dollar contract that kind of replicates patent rights uh, and, then, and then gives you something better than a commodity market to graduate into. Um, so... Those are the kind of like financial yeah. fundamental shifts that uh, I hope we see uh, um, over the next couple of years um, so that it doesn't have to be like, you know, kind of um, just like 
so it's 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 uh, I don't want to say this the wrong way. Um, so that in some ways the problem starts to take care of itself just based on market logic, mm-hmm. as opposed to um, you know investors and entrepreneurs who have something more uh, uh, emotional yeah. going on. Mm-hmm. Yep, put the right incentive model in place such that market forces guide us yeah. to a sustainable and and uh, you know great solution. Yeah. Well, Doug, where, you know, we don't all die. <laughs> I, I was yes. going to say that that's, gonna say that's a great place to leave us, Doug. But no, David, that is a great place to leave us um, to to uh, to finish off this episode. Um, Doug, where can our listeners uh, if you were to point our listeners somewhere and say, hey, hey, either check check out what I'm up to here or, or follow me here or where, where should they find you on the Internet? Oh, uh, well, I. Uh... I'm at, at Doug underscore Rand on Twitter. Um, and uh, link my LinkedIn profile is a good way to read up on more of what I uh, did during the Obama years. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, uh, LPs. We hope you enjoy this uh, this bonus episode. We love feedback. So um, if, if you want to hear sort of more stuff like this, uh, or, or I, I hate to say this in front of Doug, less stuff like this, like we just want to know w- what you're feeling when you finish these episodes and, and what we should... Uh, um, um, what we should make more of. And I think David and I are, are new to this and, and very much experimenting. And so uh, um, really appreciate all your feedback. If you like this, feel free to share that you're an LP on on Twitter. There's a link in the show notes to be able to do that um, and uh, um, you know bring other folks in to hear uh, the important stuff that, that Doug is thinking about too. So Doug, thanks a ton. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this yeah, conversation. Yeah. Well, hopefully it sparks some uh entrepreneurs to um you know start thinking in this area because we need them we do yes this is a very this is a very goal-oriented <laughs> podcast <laughs> amen all right see you next time thanks everyone